Section 45 of G.K. Chesterton's Newspaper Columns, The New Witness, 1922. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lisa Borden. G.K. Chesterton's Newspaper Columns, The New Witness, 1922, by G.K. Chesterton. Section 46. At the Sign of the World's End. Are the Journalists Joking? By G.K. Chesterton. There was published, just before the election, in one of the illustrated daily papers, a very remarkable leading article. A considerable part of it was printed in capital letters. And well it might be. It was a convenience to have the statements set out plainly, in very large type, partly to satisfy the eyes, which, by studying picture papers, are rapidly sinking back into a savage taste for picture writing, but partly also because otherwise any reader more or less sane might really have some difficulty in believing his eyes. The big type and bold spacing were equivalent to a special and solemn assurance that some human being had really and truly conceived these thoughts and had desired to write them down. The article was all about the value and responsibility of the vote. In this, it did not differ from many others. Indeed, I imagine that some moral sentiments of the sort are kept in a solid block in most newspaper printing offices. But of the sentences that specially interested me, one described what were or should be the sensations of the ordinary poor clerk or workman when going to the polling station, and it was printed like this. There is no man in the country who has more power than I have. This, it will be agreed, is a proposition that deserves to be printed in very large letters indeed. As a description of the most ideal democracy that ever visited the dreams of men, the remark would have something rather arresting and even challenging about it. As a description of real democracy, as it can sometimes exist in peasant villages and other simple communities, it would be, to say the least of it, rather too good to be true. As a description of modern plutocracy, it is... What is it? What word in the mouth of mortal man is capable of saying what it is? Then, the little clerk or navvy, as he goes forth confronted with the knowledge that Beaverbrook or Leverhume can do nothing which he himself cannot do quite as easily, proceeds to the consideration of what his overwhelming omnipotence shall decide upon doing. In this matter, he is assisted by another sentence, which runs, There has never been a general election so serious as this one. In the past, perhaps, people may have fought and killed each other for political issues on which elections turned. Sometimes they have turned on issues for which men consented to be burned alive. But there is nothing in all this to compare with the deadly dilemma of those who have to choose between Mr. Law, who is for peace and cautious reform, and Mr. George, who is for cautious reform and peace, and Mr. Asquith, who is for peace, caution, and reform, and Mr. Kleins, who, on the other hand, is for reform and peace with the addition of caution. Now, when it comes to this sort of thing, 
a question arises in most of our minds, and it concerns the sense of humor among journalists. Every journalist knows that numbers of journalists have to write what they do not believe, but at least we commonly assume that they write what they want their readers to believe. But suppose, after all, that they actually wrote with the opposite object. Suppose they deliberately wrote what their readers could not believe, because it was too absurd to believe. In other words, suppose they actually tried to provoke a reaction against themselves. Suppose they worked for an insurrection by irony instead of by direct incitement. The stages of such a progress of satire would certainly be entertaining to watch, for it would be part of the art of this delicate propaganda that it proceeded by degrees. The writers would begin, let us say, by saying dull and ordinary and obvious things, as that Mr. George is a wizard, that he has magnets for eyes, and that this personal fascination accounts for his colossal popularity with the English trade unions and the English gentry. Then they would go a little beyond the ordinary and say that Mr. George is a man of such immense learning that he talks Greek, Sanskrit, and Coptic by preference at breakfast and lunch, and cares so little for publicity that he invariably answers letters in Egyptian hieroglyphics. Then they would pass boldly beyond such disputable domestic details and simply assert that Mr. George is seven feet high, with a head like a Greek god, and three times the strength of Sandow. This would prepare the way for the final assertion that he really is a god, that he is a hundred feet high and wears the noonday sun for a crown. None of these statements are in the old-fashioned sense true, but all are in a descending series of truth, and it would be interesting to see at what stage, if any, of the series, the public began to doubt their truth. I remember trying this trick in the days of my youth, when a friend of mine and I were wedged in a jingo mob during the Boer War. We called for cheers for one South African imperialist after another, selecting more and more Semitic individuals with more and more Teutonic names, till the irony of our intention was perceived. We began our list of empire builders with Rhodes, and went on to Rutherford Harris and to Bate. But by the time we had secured hearty British cheers for Eckstein and Albu, the crowd discovered that it had been lured into a logical trap, and a free fight ensued. But that is the method that might very well be adopted by the movement I have in mind. The fun would consist in seeing how soon the fun was discovered, that is, how soon the most credulous found out that it was they who were being made fun of. And as I have already said, one is sometimes tempted to believe that the fun has already started. I have said that it must in its nature go further and further by degrees, but again, one is tempted sometimes to say that it could hardly go further than it has. After all, could one say anything much more extraordinary than that nobody in the modern world has more power than a dustman with a vote? Could anyone say anything wilder than that the differences between the election of addresses at the last election were the most deadly divisions in all English history? I have suggested that this game should begin, but it may be that the game has been going on for a long time and is even ending because it can go no further. We have sometimes ventured to laugh at our more conventional contemporaries, but suppose that in this sense they have been laughing at us. I trust we should have sufficient magnanimity to rejoice in the discovery of this more subtle and even secret revolution. 
the leader writer in the time seems to be solemn. Perhaps he is really roaring with laughter all the time he writes. The editor of the Daily Telegraph is supposed to be serious, but can anybody be so serious as he is supposed to be? Perhaps he is also dancing wildly about the office, delighted with the thought of what everybody thinks about the paper. Perhaps all these educated and often excellently informed gentlemen are really only drawing elaborate caricatures of themselves. Perhaps the man writing on the Manchester Guardian is only giving his admirable imitation of a man writing on the Manchester Guardian. Possibly the spectator is only a parody of the spectator. It would explain so much that is otherwise inexplicable. And after all, what cleverer parody could there possibly be? There was a time in the great coalitionist epoch when so able a paper as the Observer practically treated the premier as if he were the pope. But was it only kissing his toe in order to pull his leg? The thought of which pleases me very much. There would be something national about such a note of boisterous bathos, the thought of which pleases me very much, and restores my confidence in my fellow countrymen. When they butter up a politician, perhaps they were only making a butter slide. Perhaps the triumphal arch was something of a booby trap. In short, is it possible that journalists, who are intelligent enough as individuals, can take the illegible word system and the politicians and parliament and the general election and all the rest of it with such gravity as anyone would suppose from reading their remarks? Are all the men of the world quite so ignorant of the world as they make out? I should like to study once more the inscrutable faces of those sphinxes, the editors of the Times, and the Spectator. I have sometimes dared to guess that even, illegible word, is not so solemn as it seems. I like to indulge the fancy that by this curved or crooked English road might come at least that shy thing, the English Revolution. Irish rebels fight with pistols, and Italian rebels with guns, and Russian rebels with bombs. It would be beautifully fitting if English rebels fought with booby traps and butter slides. In the first act of the farce, there might be rather too much butter, but it is reassuring to remember that there are quite enough boobies. If the game is to make fools of our more pompous publicists, there are many who will lend themselves to the manufacture, and some for whom the manufacture is hardly needed. All the factories of a manufacturing age may be regarded collectively as a factory of fools. For we are all prone to make fools of ourselves when we are subject to flattery and safe from free criticism, and the millionaires who rule the modern state are more fatuously flattered and less seriously criticized than any of the more responsible rulers of human history. Perhaps, after all, the flattery will become so florid and extravagant as to cure itself, as did many of the flatteries of princes and nobles in the past. In some of the cases, such as these which I have quoted, the joke has not only become too funny to be mistaken, but almost too obvious to be funny. But to have kept up the joke, if it is a joke, so long and so successfully is really the achievement of an artist, and I offer my very hearty admiration to any such journalist. I apologize to him if I have slandered him in thinking him sincere. End of section 45.